the way of Will John. Guys, what's up? Welcome back to another one of the world's greatest podcasts of all time. Uh, shout out to Rode, sponsor of this podcast, the audio solution for all of us. We have a special guest here today, the first professor on the podcast, Professor Camille Baker. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So as stated, uh, you, you've just been promoted to professor. You want to go ahead and kind of give us your background on who you are and all the things that you're into. Okay. Okay. So um, my name is Camille Baker. I am a professor of, uh, what am I now? I am professor of interactive art and, sorry, see, I'm just getting used to my new title. (laughs) Immersive and interactive arts. That's what I'm a professor of. And I'm originally from Canada. I've been in the UK for going on 13 and a half years. And my background is varied. Um, I would say I started off doing various kinds of arts. um, And my biggest loves, I actually just did a presentation on this. My biggest loves were starting off uh, dance and uh, music. So I was in multiple bands um, in Vancouver. And uh, I also studied uh, modern dance, um, strangely alongside sociology. And when I graduated, I, you know, focused on being an indie rock uh, musician and that, you know, that went okay for a while. Um, but then I grew up and uh, <laughs> at the same time, I, I was doing little things like um, classes in video production, classes in sculpture. And I was also um, starting to think that, you know, I was getting into documentary filmmaking and then I started to think, you know, I could publish myself. I don't need these gatekeepers in film and media. So I started to teach myself HTML um, and video, uh, sorry, um, and web design. And uh, from there, I started getting into the, the, I guess you could say the wild world of new media and decided after 10 years of doing all that, I, I also, oh, in between, I tried to start an art gallery that didn't go so well. I mean, people couldn't afford it and weren't making, selling any art. Um, and uh, tried to start a, a new media company. And then I realized at some point that I wasn't a business person, really. <laughs> and uh, I yeah, just couldn't do business. And also at that point, um, there was what's called, an, I, I'm sure you know about this, the dot-com bomb, which means all the great activities were trying to get started on the web kind of failed because I had no business plan around 2000. So I regrouped and thought, thought okay, I'll go back and do a one-year uh, creative technologies course. And uh, so I did that and that was intense. I learned every kind of media production, um, particularly web focused um, and uh, what was it? DVD production. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and that was interesting, but it wasn't enough. I thought, oh, you know what? I need my brain stimulated. So I went back and did a master's in interactive art in uh, Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. And that got me really opened up to this other world that was sort of the, the I guess you could say the art and science and philosophy of interactive arts and, um, and I worked with some amazing um, professors there that were doing this com- combination of wearables, dance, um, and interaction design. So mm-hmm. that's like one thing led to another kind of thing. I've, I've kind of followed the path that fell in front of me rather than guiding it. 
And so here I am. Um, I went, uh, I decided to do a PhD after I couldn't really get much work with a master's in applied science. Um, and I decided, okay, I'll do a PhD. That's interesting. Um, and managed to get a, a, I guess you could say a sponsorship at, um, in the UK to, through the BBC R&D um, at a place called University of East London in the Smart Lab Digital Institute. And so, okay, so again, research and development, sorry to. Yeah, yeah, R&D is research and development, sorry. Yeah, and they were interested because I, I was exploring wearables and um, uh, physiological sensing, um, which is like sensors on the body to sense different, we're calling them quantified self now, but at the time it was, you know, sensing calling them what? What are we calling them? itself. So, you know, tracking your, your sleep, tracking your diet, tracking yes. all those kinds of body functions. At that point, it was just physiological sensing. Um, and so after I did my PhD, I had to figure out what to do. And so that's been what I've been doing the last 10 years of playing around, finding new things to do. So that's really interesting. So am I, am I wrong to say that this is... So it's 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 interesting how I came upon you uh, because I so I, as I mentioned to you I subscribe to this um, I don't know if it's a journal I'm not even sure what it is and to be honest I'm not even sure how it ends up in my inbox every every week but the, there are these abstracts these these summaries of these research papers uh, that are actually very interesting so I'm 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 happy that they come in and one came across on a, on a study of telepathy and uh, possibly wearable technology or uh, the implementation of technology and telepathy. And obviously telepathy, I, I, I wouldn't even dare try to, I guess, is that essentially just the ability to communicate something from uh, either human to human or would it be species to species or anything just without the use of conventional ways of talking or speaking, or maybe we should define te what telepathy is before I ask you what you found in trying to study that. Yeah. So, uh, telepathy is usually the sort of being able to uh, transfer information through the mind, um, over distance, but, um, traditionally it was also sort of a predictive thing, sort of, um, understand you're getting some information about the future. So, so, I mean, I studied a lot of these um, spiritualists from the turn of last century and um, different scientists that, well, at least one in particular uh, scientist who was, who's been exploring this in, um, in animals, but it's really transferring information over distance through the mind. Okay. And so obviously in, in, it's an interesting topic, and, and given, uh, obviously, I want to ask you the questions on what's going on with what we're doing now with the Neuralink and what, what our, our plans are as, as, a, as a species to try and do that. It does seem that we're tending towards this uh, ability now that we have the internet, which has obviously changed the way we, we, we interact. I mean, it's, it's like one giant hive mind of human. We're always connected in some, some degree, taking it to placing it in our brains or not us not having to necessarily type on a uh, on a phone outside of ourselves, I guess, is just in some sense the natural evolution of things. I don't know if natural evolution is the right way of putting that since, you know, it's not necessarily nature. But what did you, what did, what specifically did you study and what did you find when trying to, to do that? Maybe you could touch on that before we. So, 
Okay, because I, I ha- I'm coming from art, so my perspective was how can I make a situation from a media art perspective that both studies or at least tries to simulate or even stimulate. At that point, I was really more trying to stimulate a telepathic situation. So what I was trying to do was, uh, I, I, as per usual, I was trying to do too many things, but the idea is I was trying to create um, an installation that quieted the mind and body. And so I put people into this sort of tent, chair, lounge, pod. I called it the dream pod. And I put them, I build this pod. I hook them up to a heart rate sensor. Um, what else? A um, galvanic skin response, which is like lie detector. It senses if you're sweating or you're uncomfortable. Um, and then I then I did breath. Breath is a very common um, sense that people work with. And so what I did is I, I tried to create a, an audiovisual experience that calmed the body. And so I had a sort of a video reel of nature and beautiful images, and I had a calming audio track and light, different colors of light. I studied um, all these different technologies that were trying to put people in different forms of pre-REM sleep or, you know, what they called hypnagogic, which is pre-sleep or post-sleep even state. And so the whole goal was to create this environment that put people in this state. And from there, I had someone in another room. So I put people in this state and I'd hook them up to all the sensors. And then I'd put people in another room and try to get them to send information to the person in the other space. And that's because a lot of the study that I'd done, it said people are most receptive and most open in their minds when they're relaxed and they're in this hypnagogic state. And and I'd had my own experiences through meditation and through like, like um, oh, I did various different kinds of um techniques to put my body in different states whether it be um, hypnosis or meditation there was another one um holotropic breath work and so i was trying to find i was trying to find ways to um explore that openness that our, our our minds and bodies apparently have in that space. And I, I had experience um, when I was in bands and when I was doing other creative projects with all the most creative stuff came to me in that state. So I thought, okay, this I have experience with that. I'm going to explore that. And so I, I, I got them to send um, images they were looking at. So they'd be, I gave a stream of images to the other person and tried to get them to think really carefully about this image and, and focus on trying to send it to the other person. Now, um, it wasn't a strictly scientific activity. (laughs) I tried to make it as scientific as I could, but, you know, I'm coming from this idea of art and design, and I'm exploring a a fairly controversial idea because even in in my school, the the interaction design, uh, sorry, the interaction um, and human-computer um, interaction people were like, this isn't scientific. What is this? <laughs> so I was trying to, see, I guess you could say, replicate what could be considered a close to rigorous scientific experiment. But really, I was trying to explore ways to to calm the body using media, and what does that do, and how you know, how, 
what comes from that. And so we can say my, my results were inconclusive. Some people said, yeah, I got some in interesting images because after the stream of, of media that I used to calm each of the participants in the pod, I shut it off and made it black. And that's when the other person wow. was sending the images. So the idea was that they were now open and there was no extra out external stimulus and someone was sending them, you know, Great. wrong data. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. But okay. some people said they they did get some images, and some and so I had right. that all in my thesis. Some people they did get something, and not necessarily what was being sent, but something. Yeah. So it was yeah. I that's really yeah. It's it's fine. I mean, that's I find it interesting. Just the entire scientific communities, uh, and it's clearly ideas and things like this are are changing. But there is a very there's a bit of a hesitation to want to study these these things, and and. Uh, it takes people taking a chance, at least, to because I don't understand necessarily the uh, the push away from studying it. I mean, it's it's one thing if you were out here saying, "All right, everybody, all you got to do is sit in the dream pod, and I can make you telepathic." That's not necessarily what's going on. It's just let's figure out why people are doing this. Why, for instance, you've had uh, you know all of your best ideas come to you in the hypnagogic state, and and why. I've experienced that for sure. And, and we just had on a, a physicist, Tom Campbell. Uh, he's a former NASA physicist, but he's experienced all these things. He's, right now he's a consciousness researcher and um, it, he's had similar things. So it, it's, it's very possible that we as humans have an ability to do this. So that, which kind of leads me to my next thing, because I should ask you what, I don't know if you know anything about the Neuralink and, and just to, this is going to get us onto to privacy and you're in wearables and all that stuff and what that means for us as a society. But what do you think about that? And I don't know if you've, uh, you've done breathwork and you've done all these things. People also use hallucinogens. I guess we, we call them hallucinogens, whether they're DMT, ayahuasca has become this huge thing in society now to have that experience. And people claim to be experiencing all sorts of things, you know, when they do that, do you feel a worry at our, uh, you know, uh, our ability to, to, to want to mesh technology with that? Or do you think that that's going to make us better? I try to be as skeptical as possible when it comes to new technologies and still excited about things. So I don't know the specific context or, or, or con I guess, the word Neuralink in the sense that you're using it. I know. Oh, sorry. Do you not know Elon Musk Neuralink? Oh, yeah. Okay, but I don't. I haven't studied what he's doing. Sure, sure. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I do know about you know because I've been using sensors for years. I know that there's been people exploring ways to use the mind to control things and to play games and to you know to do all kinds of things. In fact, I go to this festival quite often um, called Ars Electronica, which I might I might mention later. Um, and they've had, uh, I think it was a funded EU project where every year they have a whole, I don't know, 20 odd people doing something called brain hack, where they get them to do various different kinds of um, activities from things that are scientific to things that are, like I said, playing games with their mind. So I know about all that kind of activity. I also know in, uh, you know, EU put a, a 
report a couple of years ago about the direction of wearables and that they're moving from wearables to injectables and to yeah. you know ways of linking the mind and uh, with technology. My feeling personally, and I just I just published a, a, a chapter in a book about this, is that. We have to be very careful about that. We have a lot of surveillance going on already in the world, <laughs> and and it's increasingly frightening and increasingly causing a lot of problems. We've seen things like people being uh, incarcerated for completely spurious <laughs> reasons right. because they turned up on a on a on a facial recognition cam. So I'm I'm really critical about that and I know a lot of my my peers in the artistic sort of tech community are also very skeptical about the role of this. Now, in terms of possible benefits, yeah, there's some really interesting things you can do. I I mean, one of the things that I was trying to say in my master's um, way back when, and I I had researched a lot of scientists that were exploring this. And um, okay, thank you. Um, I was I was um, looking at um, astrophysicists that were looking more more to do with what you said about opening the consciousness and being open to different kinds of ideas and different kinds of experiences and. Um, people like Rupert Sheldrake, who's a biologist, who's been shunned by the biology community, but- um, Has he really? His, I thought he was- Well, he's oh, got really? a lot of supporters. He's got a lot of okay, supporters, so but not necessarily in the scientific community. I see. <laughs> right? And he's written numerous books about this idea of morphic, morphic resonance and animals being able to know when they're, um, their owners are coming home and this, this sense That's of telepathy. Right. Um, my worry about tech, you know, going in and putting stuff in the brain um, or in the body is that a we're not we're not exploring what the body can do on its own, okay? Which I think is still quite powerful. We, you know, we don't. One of the things that I've always kind of been annoyed about is this sort of previous cyberpunk notion, and, and I guess there's still some um, neuroscientists out there who, who think this way, but. Um, uh, well, we'll just transfer our brain into a vat and we'll get rid of the body and that, you know, everything will be great. Well, actually, a lot of us like to use our body and a lot of knowledge comes from the body. And I think a lot of the, the brain is all over the body, right? So that's one, one stance. But I also feel like if you're putting tech into the body, you're, you're, you're sort of overriding those natural capabilities. And you're basically saying... We're going to tap into the things that we like about the, the brain and the body. We're just going to like override the rest. And I think that's a mistake. I think there's some, some amazing things about being human that we really haven't yet properly explored. And I think there's so much there. And I'm interested in technology that can extend and uh, maybe augment the body, but not in the sense of the, of the uh, transhumanist folks out there, I suppose. I feel like we have other things that, again, it's about bypassing the body and, and doing other things. And I'm not, I'm not sure I'm on board with that. Right. Yeah. I don't know that I necessarily am too. It's intriguing. And obviously all the benefits that we can get from a, you know, from a, in the medical world, whether these are, are solving solutions, obviously the neural link has been linked to 
to stopping, you know, seizures for people with sure. uh, what is it, epilepsy. Those are all great right. things. No right. one's against that. And no. clearly, clearly Absolutely. that's not it. It's, it's some form of being able to hold on to our humanity. Exactly. Or if it's the case that we even need the technology to do that, which is why I think it's important to, to study, like find out. I mean, what do we know? Sure. If it's possible sure. without it, then then what are we doing? I mean, augmenting it would be great, uh, I think, at least to some. But I think probably the answer with all of these things is, is, is balance. And yeah. uh, you mentioned um, this slight concern, like we're always being watched and we're always doing this. And I'd, I think I'd asked you off air if you'd read i just basically finished reading uh edward snowden's uh book which i can't remember the the name maybe uh paulus you can pull up the name of the book or do you remember uh no i think it's on my shelf somewhere too i've got a stack (laughs) yeah and it was it's fascinating but it's also it's clearly terrifying i mean there's just there's no though it makes you seem as if there's absolutely there's really nothing to and that's kind of the conclusion in a sense that he uh that he draws from it um, is that, oh, sorry, Paulus, yeah, his name is Edward Snowden. Uh, that's the name of the, the author. But uh, I, I don't know what that means now that we're here at this stage because technology is, you mentioned DVDs, that you were doing DVD stuff. I, when I was making my first highlight video for, for, uh, for football, I had to make the highlight video on a computer Obviously, and I think if I'm honest, I think they were being filmed on like VCR and then somehow it was getting transferred to this and then I'd get it on on the computer. However, I did. I don't even remember now. And then I had to get a uh, permanent record. Is that what it's called? Is that what it's called? Edward Stone? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Permanent record. Okay. So um, and I'd have to get it on DVD and then I would have to send it out to coaches, you know, and then here we are now in this day and age, if I wanted to stream a game to someone else, you can do that like that. So what yeah. does that mean after just a few, a few yeah, years? We're gonna exponentially. Be... It's really true in our lifetimes. We, you know, it, it's gone from, yeah, it, zero to a hundred and, mm-hmm. you know, really quickly. And I agree. It's sometimes frightening and, and, and kind of uncontrollable. You're right. It's, there's th- things that we, have no control over but what I think I'm interested or I know I'm interested in I know a lot of artists are I'm sure there's other activists techno activists out there that are focused on this which is not not shutting some aspects of this research down but being mindful of it and and making sure there's a there's a, some oversight and making sure there's um, awareness of the community and, and people, you know, thinking about what's happening to them. So this idea of making sure everybody knows what's going on rather than keeping things secret and also having find, trying to find a way to keep governments and corporations to account. And that for me is the, the important part. So making sure like, I, I think a year or so ago, a lot of the roboticists and AI researchers had signed uh, a global agreement that they were going to try to make sure that um, all the research was going to focus on AI for good. Now, of course, there's always going to be some rogue person who doesn't abide by that, right? But at least in the scientific community, there's an agreement that we should be building AI for good and and um, 
and robots for good. And I think some kind of other agreement like that should be happening in all other areas of technology development. What is the purpose? What is the outcome? You know, what is the impact? I think that's the big thing that a lot of artists in the community that I am in are focused on. What is the outcome of of these activities and, and the impact and, and making work, a lot of the artistic work that I see is about looking at, like pushing forward and thinking about those those issues. Uh-huh. So then uh, before I go on to the other, you mentioned earlier injectables. What is an injectable? It's, I mean, on a simplest form, we've been doing it for a long time. There have been artists, I don't know, 15 maybe 20 years ago, uh, injecting uh, RFID chips in hands and other parts, right? We're doing it with animals, right? But more and more people are opting so that they can just, you know, I'll just uh, use my chip in my hand or whatever. But it's going further than that. And that's um, things like um, injecting nanobots into the body for medical purposes to attack certain kinds of cells. Some of it, yeah, maybe it's for good, for sure. Uh, some of it, I'm, I'm. Well, I mean, it's still early days, but you know, early days can ex- accelerate into deep development in no time, right? So, yeah, I think it's understanding what is happening, how is it happening, what's it for, and and what is it doing to the body, what's the impact? Um, yeah, and and one of the, uh, one of the authors that I quoted in my recent chapter was talking about this idea uh, body area network and putting the idea of putting technology both on and in various parts of the body that network together and send out um, information. And her concern was, oh, just another level of, of, of surveillance. And I mean, to some degree, we have that already with body trackers going to whatever, you know, whatever wearable com- company has made it, they collect the data and then they aggregate it, blah, blah, blah. And, and in America, I've, also read uh, numerous articles about employers using this against employees, right? You're not fit enough. So therefore, uh, you know, if you want to keep working here, you're going to have to do some more exercise because we are watching you. Like to me, that's pretty freaky. No, that's, that's insane. And I guess when you think about it, it's really uh, a Fitbit or something like this or an Apple watch that seems to, you know, just track your, it has everything about you, which is this, that was another takeaway from this is your phone tells everything about you. And now if you hook it up to, it's got your heart rate, you know, and now, so it knows what you're doing while you're at these places. I mean, Apple's trying to ask about your sex life. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's beyond where, and we've just gone, it's okay. All right. And we, you know, all these comedians out there have all the jokes about what happens with the user agreements. We don't, you you can't read them every day. You might even be asked every time you get on a website, you're asked for a user agreement. You just got to click. Okay. The cookies. Can we, can we watch you here? Can we watch you sleep? Can we watch you in your kitchen? Who knows? <laughs> and it's just too much. And, and then they and sell so, it back to you. What's that? Then they sell it back to you. And then they sell it right back to you, of course. And they use that to manipulate all the things. And it's really strange. And, and overall, you know, you just have this general sense. I'm of the mind that the overall general uh, sense of, of humankind is tends towards good. 
And uh, I, th- I think overall, I'm okay. So maybe, maybe you don't, but I, I've been meaning to read. I'm not sure if he is American. I think believe he is Stephen Pinker. He wrote that book. Have you, have you read that book? No, I know of him, but yeah, I know. You, you know okay. well known. Yeah. I have- I haven't read it, and I think the, the 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 conclusion he was drawing was that over time, over this current period of time, we've clearly tended towards good, and now our society has Checks way less out. poverty yeah. and all this stuff. And and you know, I guess it, it's hard for us to say as humans. I mean, we have such a small amount of time that we are here, and we can't weigh this against what life was like in the 1400s to say if someone could just walk up and or a duel duels happened not too long ago that was, <laughs> which i guillotine. i don't mind yeah oh well, the guillotine yeah which is you know as a matter of fact it's really funny on the guillotine i just saw this the, the statistic the very last public uh execution someone who was executed by a guillotine was actually on film oh. it was that it was that recent. Yes, it was. It was so not long ago that it was actually wow. filmed. Wow. Um, but uh, in, in any case, because you, you brought up this before, we definitely I want to kind of get into Ars Electronica and, and what that is. But just to finish on what we were saying, when all these scientists put out this, uh, you know, from the AI world and, and the roboticists, yes, we want to study something for good. Yes, we want this to do. Does that mean is that just a bunch of I, I don't know, maybe you have a different. It just sounds like a bunch of nonsense because the way it works in the US, what about all the military? What about the military? What about all these people? They have to use corporations or they have to use these people. They don't necessarily just go, all right, this is the US Army's, uh, you know, they, they go to Lockheed Martin or they go to these giant companies and they say, you study it, we'll use the technology uh, after you sort it out. And these are probably, they must be the same people. Or how does it work in that world? I mean, I don't, I, I, I think what it says is a number of scientists have, I'm not all the time, all the scientists what is what it means, is that a number of scientists, very well-known scientists, have said their conscience tells them that they will not do something that will harm humans. So what I would expect, of course, people can make agreements. They can sign, you know, you see politicians and other people doing this all the time, right? Maybe if the price is right, they'll change their mind. But, and, and of course, the system is different in America where there's a lot of privatization, whereas in other parts of the world, it's less so. Um, in some places, they're, you know, they're communist or fascist and they, you know, people don't have a choice. But, um, I mean, I think at least for that group of scientists, very well-known scientists, they have made an oath. And I would hope, we would all hope, that that oath is like a, a doctor's oath that they to, to do no harm. So I suppose we have no way of knowing if they're going to keep that oath, but we will hope that they're reputable and respectable and honorable enough to to go, you know, to carry that on. But but there's always malicious uh, folks out there, and I mean, I, I, I hate mentioning names, but you know, we we're looking at this at least in the UK, Russian interference in all kinds of things, and they and they and it's state-sponsored interference. It's not even rogue hackers, right? It's state-sponsored. Right. Yeah. Same thing in China. So so who's to say? Um, who's going to bypass that idea and do what they want? And, and if you could, then if you could speculate, I, I got the Manchester United sleep specialist to to speculate on where he thought you know uh, we would be in in uh, in football, in the sport of football with uh, technology and wearables and all those things. And he, of course, 
said that, yeah, he expected that they would be placing chips inside that were giving real t- real time data to coaches or uh, somebody who's monitoring your because apparently just already having we wear these these heart monitors when we play now. And already that's not enough, I guess you need to. And he was saying that we'd be able to monitor possibly all of your essentially your vital signs and, and literally things that you may be like uh, you're low in sodium right now, your magnesium, this low. And so they could concoct something obviously to then give to you when you come off the field at halftime, et cetera, et cetera. If you had to speculate, and this is not in the sport world, just in general, I, I would put it twofold. What do you think has been done? Because there are, like you said, state sponsored, maybe it's Russia, China, or any of these company or countries that don't have the rules and regulations. Um, what do you think has been done possibly that could be revolutionary that most of the world may not be uh, doing? And then two, what do you think we're necessarily heading towards? What is it that we're trying to create? I don't know if you, if you can. Well, I mean, the things that I think are, I mean, in my view are maybe not revolutionary, but hopeful (laughs) Um, are things that I've, come across in in technology and been involved in as well um, are people who are focusing on trying to undo some of the th- things that have been done, right? So some of the things they're trying to undo are like, okay, let's move away from massive amounts of pollution with technology and, and wearables and fashion. And let's start to think about how can we make create materials, like I'm really excited about biofabrics, for example, making fabrics out of um, uh, cultures, various kinds of organic cultures or fruits or um, there's a number of things, mushrooms. So I'm really excited about people who are trying to come up with new ways of making materials, not necessarily only for for clothing, but for manufacturing, for, you know, like plane seats, for, you know, you name it. Um, so I'm excited about this idea of let's make sustainable materials that are robust, but that are organic and have a potential of breaking down. And some of that's been happening over the last two to four years and increase accelerating. There's a lot more activity around um, how can we make for example, wearables, but all kinds of um, items in our world from plastics and packaging and blah, blah, blah. To- so could you, oh, sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to hear, is there any way for you to make that even more specific? Like, what does that mean to the layperson? I mean, you say things are going to be uh, changing. Well, well, yeah, I mean, I could use fashion as an example because I've been connected to that. Um, clothing made out of banana leaves. Um, okay. What so? What does that mean for me? I mean, I go out and buy something with then, banana leaf. Yeah, but what it means for you is that you pick up something that's been sustainably made, and then okay, after if you're finished with it, you know, one of the problems we have in this world is fast, fast fashion, right? Things are made very cheaply, um, and then they go out there in the world. They're sold very cheaply, and then they end up in in the compost heap, right? And they don't break down very quickly. And they use tons and tons and tons and literally tons of water and other resources. So they're super unsustainable. Um, 
So on every level of the life cycle of that product, they're completely unsustainable. So for you, having something made out of pineapple or banana leaf or any number of one of these things, mushrooms, um, means that you're buying something that A, has been made sustainably, and then when you're done with it, you can chuck it out and it'll biodegrade in maybe a year. It might not be immediate because you want it to be initially robust so you can actually wear it. But... And there might be specific types of recycling you need to do in order for it to break down. Um, some of them take some extra chemicals or extra things to, to enable them to break down, but they're essentially compostable. It means that we can start to feel less guilty about how much we consume. So that's just an example from a, and it is still a technology. It is, it's not digital, it's not electronic, but, but it is still a technology. And, and on another level, um, having um, the whole life cycle of technology development being broken down and analyzed so that it can become more sustainable. That's still only happening on, you know, small levels. And independent designers and technologists are, are, or small, as they call them in Europe, SME, small to medium enterprises, are exploring this. But hopefully, hopefully that will ripple out over time because our level of consumption in the world and the way things have been sold to us is just, it's just not sustainable. We can't carry yeah. on this way. <laughs> well, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, 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 I'm wondering if the issue there is, is that it's not profitable. Is this, oh, of, course, uh, like of course, of course, there's all the costs, costs in the, in the, in the supply chain. So the project I was working on two years ago called where sustain, I've sent you guys a link was trying to enable, and this was funded by the European commission. So they are looking at it, um, was trying to get a number of small, uh, SMEs to dive into this, to show that it can be profitable, that it can make businesses more efficient. It can be, make, um, you know, because consumers want these things. So that's about profit, right? But big companies aren't ready to do that yet. They're still very locked into their supply chains. But they're, you know, I, I think the point is, is that some of these um, things are being developed. And yes, if more companies can show that they can make money by making themselves more profitable, then eventually, and there's push and, and um, consumer demand, which is always what really, um, pushes things over the edge, uh, then things will change. Until we're there, of course, they'll keep doing business as usual. But what we were trying to do in this project was to show through, we, we funded 46 projects, each of them had 50,000 euros for six months to change the way they do things in design, to change the way they made their products, whether they be e-textiles, which are um, electronic or uh, textiles that have some kind of metallic and conductive um, weave in it or smart textiles which are not necessarily um, sustainable or about electronics but they're things like super fabrics that you know give you uh, more breathing or something like that but the whole range of different kinds of textiles and and wearable technologies um, they were meant to find as many parts of the, of the life cycle of the project from, and, and the development cycle, design cycle, from sourcing materials to uh, design to prototyping to sending out to manufacture. They were meant to find 
ethical and sustainable ways of doing that. And they, they all did to some degree. They couldn't all do everything because our system is set up in such a way to make, make it dif difficult for them to do that. Yeah. So then all these things that are trying to be created, obviously, whether that's for, for shirts, for et cetera, correct me if I'm wrong, but given that there's not, it's going to be hard at the beginning to obviously make it profitable, <laughs> to make it profitable because you have to put a whole lot of research you know, into creating these, then are, do we already have a lot of the solutions for these things there? We just can't implement them on a grant, or I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say can't, but aren't willing to do them because of that. So, and also, so then Ars Electronica, which maybe you should just explain what it is entirely, but it, this is a place where people are coming to and presenting a lot of their ideas, things that they've done, the way they've been innovative, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, then, yeah, I would imagine people are constantly putting it on display. Maybe go ahead and explain Ars Electronica before okay. then. So Ars Electronica is now 40 years old. It's a arts and technology festival based in Linz, Austria. It's sort of the second big, biggest city in Austria. And it celebrated its 40th anniversary, I think, last year, the year before that. And what they've been showcasing is artists who have been, um, and this you're showing um, a particular part of Ars Electronica that I'm involved in this year. It's a, it's a dispersed Ars Electronica because they usually get 8,000 people over five days or more. Uh, more than that, um, in their doors. This year, they're do, putting 120 countries uh, to, to make a localized online version of the festival. But it really focuses on how art and technology together create new innovations. And, and to me, uh, what I've seen over the years is that some of them are purely art. Some of them are amazing innovations that definitely influence technology, like the technology industry. Some of them are speculative, meaning they're sort of not necessarily um, a new innovation, but they're kind of proposing possible futures. Um, and definitely big companies have really got involved in this from, you know, from fashion to car companies. They've really uh, gone to elect Ars Electronica to see different ways of, of innovating that, that they might want to implement in their own, you know, in their, their own, own industry. Uh -huh. So it's this particular page you're seeing is actually mostly from the, the program that I'm curating this year. And so this is the UK version. I'm sure uh, we can go to uh, a, a Swedish uh, version of this pretty much, like I say, 120 countries out of uh, how many we have in the world. I don't know. It's pretty amazing. So they if you went to gardens up there in the left hand, you'll see just how many uh, countries are getting involved there. Just under festival. Oh, okay. It's okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, but Ars Electronica is sort of the place to go if you want to know what's happening in technology. <laughs> Universities yeah. come from all around the world to show what their students are innovating in. Um, so yeah, it, it's an amazing festival. Um, it's not the only one of its kind, but it's definitely one that's quite engaged with industry as well. So then, yeah, I was asking this beforehand as well. What is the most influential thing that's come out of it? And I believe you called it a golden Nika. Is that what the winner gets or that's? Yeah, there's an award every year called the Golden Nika. And, and of course, there's 
different categories. So there's animation, there's electronic art, there's, I mean, I don't know all the categories off the top of my head, but they, every, and they've evolved over time because there's been robotics introduced and AI, a number of different kinds of things. They used to have a category for net art, which is, I don't think anymore, but um, it, it's looking at different areas of art that are incorporating technology and, and the Golden Nika, I mean, is judged by a jury who decides if it, how it's the most innovative in the world. It's kind of the con of, of um, art and technology. Um, but I mean, there's been an, a, a number of amazing um, things that have come out of it. A couple that I'll, I'll mention because I mentioned to you two the other day and I, I find them kind of interesting. Um, and, and one of them is actually more part of what's called Starts Prize because it's, it's um, a project that I'm involved in. It's more of a how to look at collaborations. But um, one years ago was, uh, I, I don't even know if it won the Golden Mika, but it was definitely part of Ars Electronica was what's called Arduino. And Arduino is a, a microcontroller and, a, and a, a sort of a system of, a, of electronics that really, um, I would say, revolutionized the uh, design and electronics, small electronics at least, DIY electronics um, areas. I, I don't know if they're industries, but um, it really revolutionized the way artists can work with technology in, in different forms of electronic art and prototyping, absolutely, for any um, electronic students, not necessarily in design, who are wanting to prototype. It's a simple, quick, easy to use, and um, very much adopted by, by artists and designers. But like I say, across the board of tinkerers and makers and, you know, so that's one thing that was years ago, that's like 2004 or two, something like that. And more recently, one that won the Starts Prize um, was um, uh, a Japanese pop star who was recording her songs on a DNA strand and just showing yeah, how do you how do you do that? Make, turning the DNA into a storage unit, which is now more people are exploring. So those are sort of examples. There's more sort of design and architecture examples. There's you know public space examples. There's a range of different examples. I, I urge people to go look at, at some of the things that have come out of it because there's so much. It's, it's actually mind-blowing. You go, if you ever go, you will never be, even in five days, you will never be able to see everything. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's that, it's that expansive. Thousands of exhibits. Thousands. Wow. It's okay. huge and it's brilliant. And, you know, some people think it's getting too commercial, but I think you have to have something that bridges that art innovation industry gap or it'll never change the way exactly. we're doing things. Exactly. Yeah. It has to, it has to be able to touch the practical nature of the way that we live and the commercial setting. It's something that people have to live with. I mean, I get the purists that all just want to, and I'm sure I'm not, I'm no artist myself. And honestly, if you saw me draw, it's hilarious. I can't <laughs> stick figures. I seem to, to, to screw those up as well. But um, I, I, I'm not kidding though. <laughs> but like, I do consider myself a, a rather creative, you know, person. All of my, all of my interests are, are are pretty pretty varied, and they involve the creative arts. But the art 
portion of actually well, not sketching. visual is fine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but then I, I would, I would, I would wonder in, because we did talk about this as well, the whole VR world. So they come the virtual reality world they in, and I'm sure in art, this is also a thing. So here's, uh, in our world, in, in the football world, they come to us and they say, hey, we're a VR company. We've got the new revolutionary way to train. Uh, you, put on, you put on this headset and you know you carry uh, six computers with you to the field and we'll put you in a thing. I swear, I swear it's really like this. They're all so, they're all so convinced that they have the right, the right thing. And you put it on and you do all this and it's just, it's nonsense in, in, one, in, in one way because that's not better than me just taking all of the nonsense off of my head and just kicking the ball at the field. You haven't provided me anything. Uh, have you seen, and I, I wonder if it's going to change the way we watch movies when something like the Oculus Rift, which did you, you have tried or you maybe even have an Oculus Rift? Oh, you've got one right there. I have actually a Quest. A Quest. Okay, so in this thing, which is, they're all so cool because when I walk through, whenever I am back in the US, like you'll walk past, say, the, the Microsoft store. They have a store now. You know, and there's all these VR things set up. And you can watch what the person sees. I did it the last time I was there. It was a first-person type of shooter game that they that they had, and you a hundred percent. My heart was was going because they put you in this thing, and it's immersive uh, to that sense that I'm ducking and dodging. My heart is really racing. Uh, what have you seen in that space? I mean, clearly it would be different for art because you could create this world and. You could do something that doesn't necessarily have to be so practical, but have you explored that? What What is it that you do with your quest? Like, what's... Well, I mean, I, I started off a couple of years ago researching it from the point of view because I was really interested years ago, this idea of using the mobile phone as an artistic tool and collaborator. So I wrote a book uh, about this called uh, New Directions in Mobile Media and Performance, and it came out in 2018. Um, and so I was looking at the different ways in which people are using mobile, but not just mobile, wearable and wearable on the head, including the, the VR and AR. And so I, I, I went and experienced a number of different projects in AR and VR just to get a sense of what was happening. Of course, you know, it came out in 2018 and that was sort of the beginning of the renaissance, I say, because of course we had VR in 1995. I still don't think anybody has quite yet talked Char Davies piece from 1995, which was fully immersive and was tracking um, breath and uh, blood and other things. And, you know, it was like going underwater. I, I don't know if even a lot of people even know about her, but she was an amazing. No, I was going to ask, what, what is it, what is it specifically that well, happened? She was an artist from the nineties and she started a company called soft image, which then got sold off to, I think, um, uh, and became either Maya or one of the big 3D softwares. So she's, you know, she's a millionaire and lives somewhere on an island and whatever. Okay. But before that, she made the beautiful VR um, worlds called uh, Cosmos and Ephemer. So go Google that, people, if you're listening. But but really, more recently, and I think it's slightly a ripoff of, off of her. There was a project here. At, well, it's, it toured around. Um, and it was in the Sachi Gallery, and I don't say that in the mo in a disparaging way. I don't think they directly sure. ripped off Char sure. Davies, but they sort of represented what she did in '95 slightly again. And they're called um, Marshmallow Laser Feast, and they're really cool 
uh, art and VR company and sort of have a, 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 an interest in exploring what you can do. And they, they had a, a project called We Live in an Ocean of Air. And, and they, they connected to your heart, your pulse and your breath. And okay. they, what would happen is you could see other people through their breath. So you could be in there and you could see other people. You could see their pulse and your own pulse. And you interacted with the trees <laughs> and the air. Um, and that was really a beautiful experience. And yet I'm still, I'm still kind of wanting more. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm one of the people I even wrote about, but you get one experience and you want to push it. You want it to be more, you want it to be more. Another company that's done some really interesting work is a, is a, a, a group called now, oh yeah, dot, dot. And of course I've sent, I'm sure there's many around the world. I'm just thinking of the ones that I have access to in the UK. Um, dot, dot recently did something that was very commercial and I'm not sure it was as good as their other one. So they did a project called Somni a couple of years ago and it was like moving through different elements of sleep and consciousness. You would have liked it. And you, oh, yeah. it, it was part immersive theater. So it was theater and you get brought into different rooms, but you put on headset at different places and you experience sort of alternate realities and Wow. And sort of like that idea of creating sleep consciousness and dreams. So it was really beautiful. And there's something like five different rooms where you put on headset and explored VR worlds. But then you also had this live interaction with actors and you had different spaces and you were moving around. For me, the real future of VR is combining theater or performance and VR because just being alone, you know, hitting things in, in space. <laughs> It doesn't have a narrative enough. It's not. It's not completely engaging. And I'm interested in not only can we see and engage with things, um, both a, you know, a, a intellectual and artistic, and you know, um, excitement level or you know, fully in, engaged level, but also um, I'd like us to be able to feel it. So I'm interested in the haptic side of it. So. Uh, working with a with a, a company called Valkyrie Industries, he's making a glove for VR so that you can sculpt and move and and okay. um, change clay and things so you can actually feel it. But to me, it needs to even go further than that. It needs to be I need to feel it on my body. And I'm creating a project where you're going to wear a, a, a corset. It's a project for women's health and what's happening in the reproductive system. And they'll put on a corset, go into this tent installation and then also have a vr set and they'll be inside their own body exploring different things and feeling it on the body yeah. and so for me that's where i'd like to see things going you can feel it on your body you can you can nearly smell it and you know maybe sure. we're not a taste yet but i want to feel all of those senses and all of those emotions that i don't think vr is quite there yet but i you know it's going toward that so, so then what do you think of AR and where they're headed with things? In well, AR in some ways is progressively progressing even faster in a larger sense. And I was, I was a judge on um, an EU uh, funding this year that was funding big companies, like big companies. Um, I can't say who, and I'm supposed to not say too much, but um, who are innovating in this place 
particular, you know, in VR and AR, and for things like manufacturing and and medicine, um, and you know, travel and like a rain archaeology, sport. Um, so there's a lot of uh, funding going into that. So they picked ten massive projects, like they're two million or more per company to develop hardware and software to do things. And AR is really the place where a lot of industry is more focused for training, training me medical students, training me you know people how to do something in a in manufacturing setting, training people to go out in the field where there aren't proper tech technicians. Well, training is a big thing. Um, of course, gaming is a big thing. Um, and AR might progress faster in a different way. They're kind of going like this because AR, like HoloLens, is one uh, outcome, but they're going to make them more and more like regular sunglasses, like Google Glass was trying to do. But I think people rebelled against the surveillance side of that. But AR has the potential of, yeah, overlay. Can you define AR? Sorry for yeah, the people who AR may not know. Yeah, augmented reality. It's where you're layering uh, something that's 3D or, you know, usually it's 3D, um, but sometimes it could be other images. A lot of um, archaeologists are using it to put photographs on top of reality so you can see the real world and this augmented image. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of, like, museums, like, are using AR a lot to put in you know, historical elements over top of real situations or real spaces. So heritage really likes it. But I, I AR is exploding, and it's exploding in places that are not necessarily entertainment. So that's that's the thing to know. And on some level, maybe AR will progress more, and VR will just be another entertainment source right maybe they'll just go off in those directions it's still early days and it's strange because vr is so old but it's only really come into its own in the last four years again <laughs> um you, you should go and look at the history of vr it's super interesting i uh, yeah i just i remember as you know as a pretty small kid going yeah. into in the 90s going yeah. to arcades yeah and remembering that VR was around yeah. there then, and it was still, it was super cool. And I'm sure those games, I can't even remember most of them then now, but they obviously, there were a lot of quarters to first off to play, to play those games, but they were amazing. Uh, and that was but back they then. And it, they didn't make money. Oh, they didn't make money. Was it because they were too expensive to make at that time? And okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. But go, but because go I, look at it. It's super interesting. There was like, was a, uh, I can't remember the, VR Boy or something, one of the companies made this really bad console, and then people forgot about it because the internet exploded, right? Oh, so it's, wow. It's super interesting history. It was like, it could have progressed so much faster and so much earlier, and who knows where it would have been by now, but uh -huh. they just dropped it and went, okay, forget that, we're going to the internet. And, sure. and it still quietly moved <laughs> along in the background, and that's why we can yeah. do what we're doing now, but yeah. yeah, it was really cool. Oculus that revolutionized that. Okay, perfect. And he's pulled up right here the the best yeah, AR yeah, smart glasses. What is, are those specifically? What are these things? These are kind know? of they're AR glasses. They're just funkier. I saw a guy this summer, or no, in the uh, in Barcelona, this VR um, residency wearing some from America. 
So they're uh-huh. a new kind of, I mean, they're not cheap as you can see, but they make you look like you're wearing sure. sunglasses, but they're, how much they are, are they? They're, they're fully AR. Bucks. Yeah. yeah. They so put, when you say, yeah, go, I was just going to say they, 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 so essentially you're, you've got the glasses on, it's going to give me information on my entire surrounding here. Like uh, that, but it's like, it, a it's a weird display. thing. Okay, so but it it's going to be able to give me information such as what is useful here. Like that's a well, woman that's, in front of me. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that remains <laughs> to be seen, right? Advertisers or, or, or technologists always think, oh, you can see where this, where you know, you can see maps or you can see restaurants. Not all of us really care about you know stores all the time, right? Advertisers can throw stuff. Okay, well, I'm not sure I want that. I think it still remains to be seen, right? What they're going to do with it. It always is the case, and this is still with VR as well, is that they come up with the technological solutions. And then it's up to us, artists and designers, to come up with actual uses for them. Use, I see. And you said that for the Google Glass, you felt that people kind of rebelled against the surveillance part of that. Do you think it was that? or, Or do you think, because they were also really... That, if I remember right, the Google Glass made you look like RoboCop, like some sort of. You not think that maybe also the design had some issues because it just looked clunky. Who wants to wear this thing that makes me look like I'm really weird walking down the street? And then, oh, you're right. I see what you mean. Do you mean the surveillance of other people? Because that would also make me really uncomfortable that this person is just sitting here recording me. Yes. And then that was the send it to Google. But also okay. they do make them more funky and cool eventually. And there's ones that are similar to this that are, are even, you know, without the rims, the little camera. But I think I think it was mainly the surveillance. Other people didn't wanna they didn't, you know, I don't know what they're looking at. I don't know what they're seeing when they're when they're looking yeah. at me. So I think it's changing the direction. But you know, we'll see. We'll see. I think the, the value in AR is not what they advertise. The value in AR and where the money's going, at least in Europe, is the are these things I mentioned, training and finding and teaching and, you know, having kids being able to see things on top of the world and being able to learn from that. And just like there's so many other applications that are not entertainment and they're also not these uh what we think they they're not advertising they're i mean i'm sure those people are in the in the game as well but i think i think the interesting thing about technology is we think one thing and something completely different comes out and that's interesting i find so then uh, just to to kind of put uh everything in perspective as well how do you go about your daily life with technology and all these things that you have in fashion you, and are all this stuff that you have? Are you just full of cool technological things <laughs> running around your house? <laughs> Can you levitate things in your home? Do you have a, do you have, do you have a Alexa or a Siri or any of these, you know, have any of those things? So how do you know? And that's for why or how, how do you do? How do you go about so I, I literally, I finally caved. I've been very much against renewing technology all the time because all the, the, the issues around um, conflict minerals, small children being at gunpoint, digging up cold tans so we can have our nice mobile phones and um, people jumping off buildings to kill themselves in China because they work, you know, 40 hours a day. <laughs> I'm exaggerating yeah. as well, yeah, yeah. Fact, but you know what I'm saying? All these totally. like really major issues that we just don't talk about and it's just rolled under the carpet or put, shoved under the carpet are real things. And I've been trying personally to to not um, facilitate that. Although like 
my partner said, I'm also, it's, it's probably, I'm only hurting myself sometimes because I've been having the, the, uh, a very old phone for many years and it dropped it a million times and, you know, it's hardly working anymore. The a computer sure. that's like nearly 10 years old and also oh, barely wow. works. <laughs> that's 10 so years. Was, a 10 years of computer is like a hundred years, right? Yeah. For, for a tech person or a person in the technological field, I'm behaving the complete opposite. But you'll find a lot of people like that because it's the idea of I want to make the best use of my technology and not do fast tech like people are doing with fast fashion. I want my technology to work for me. I don't want it to be all about consume, 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 consume. And also the latest tech is doing more surveillance on us and doing, you know, I, I forbid Alexa in our house. I don't use Siri and whatever it is on this new uh, PC, uh, gaming PC I've just got, it's uh, Cortana. I forbid all that because I don't want it to know my every waking breath. And so, so no, I don't have all the latest tech gadgets because I'm actually trying to do otherwise. But I definitely try to get my students engaged in that. My students, we try to give them as much of the latest stuff that we can and then I can borrow that. Um, I definitely go to a lot of conferences and go to a lot of festivals and see what people are doing. I'm, I'm kind of more, I mean, I'm kind of more interested in less the toys and more the use and more the, the exploration and pushing the boundaries that a lot of artists are doing. Um, am I also interested in the activism? There's a large sort of artist activist, um, contingent out there trying to find ways to innovate technology and, and push it in ways that in some in some senses they might even get arrested for um, because they are um, challenging the government's behavior or they're challenging in particular surveillance culture a couple of artists who I really admire strongly that I'll throw out there to people is one named Paolo Sirio and I think Sirio is spelled C-I-R-I-O uh, we're going to we're going to um, showcase him in the, this Ars Electronica thing that I'm doing, um, who's done a lot of stuff about Facebook and other social medias and data collecting activities of various social media. And another one is uh, Julian Oliver, who's made a lot of hardware gadgets that do things like listen in on conversations. And, and they're both amazing artists, but they're doing work that is in between art and um and programming or or engineering, um, uh, Julian Oliver has something called Critical uh, Engineering Manifesto, and he's really all about technologists and artists should be challenging people, but also governments and politicians and companies to do better and to think differently. Another great artist in that realm is uh, a guy whose book I have actually. Let me. I think I showed you this other this the other day. He's a great thinker uh -huh. and artist. New Dark um, Age, huh? By James uh -huh. Brittle. James Bridle, yeah. And uh, he's done a lot of um, work around, you know, challenging use of drones and drone technology, and and how's that's being used in war. And so, so I and I'm I'm sure there's lots of uh, women who I haven't mentioned who are doing amazing uh, work as well, but. It's these kinds of things that I'm more interested in than having the latest gadgets. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and have this, this sentiment that you have uh, basically kind of a bit of uh, skepticism and a bit of detachment from 
incorporating it into your life while at the same time actually studying it and finding ways to do that. I remember that I, I'm not sure if I read this or if I heard this somewhere that the people within Silicon Valley, the majority of them don't have smartphone phones or don't use smartphones. So have you found this to be, are you strange among your, amongst your peers or do your, no. So they also too have the, a similar sense that we need to keep this at a distance. I like this. I want to see what it can do, but they don't let it take over their lives. Yeah. 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 And strangely, I'm seeing this in students as well. We started seeing students doing things like they're less interested in current technology because it alienates them. And a lot of students who hate Instagram because it makes them feel bad about themselves. So they take weekend breaks from social media um, or they want to investigate old technology. So they're, you know, they can do everything on their phone, but they want to learn how to use film or they want right. to make old photography. And I find that really heartening and really interesting. It's like a rebellion. And we, we call this, um, um, oh, now I'm forgetting my terminology. Um, oh, I'll come back to it. But there's this idea of post, uh, post technology. It's not called that. But um, uh-huh. the idea that, that a lot of people and young people as well, in particular maybe, but people in my, my peer group are thinking about ways to take breaks, holidays from technology, or um, just, yeah, be really um, critical of it and think about when is it useful to me and, and useful to society and when can I just kind of step back from it. Distance. Right. Yeah. I think the mindful, I think a mindful uh, approach to these is what's done it. Me speaking personally, there is absolutely, and I, it's really funny because when I was 14 or so, uh, they wrote in the paper, maybe slightly, um, slightly older than that. They wrote in the paper, they, they'd asked my girlfriend at the time what I was like off the field. And I, maybe I was 16, something like this. And, <laughs> and they quoted her in this, this feature because it was about soccer. I had scored some gold, some something like this. And they quoted her as saying, he's really weird. He goes to movies by himself and he calls his issue only child syndrome. Uh, because, and that's how I'd always referred to it. But as it stands now, we have a company that's full of, we're, we're on every single platform, you know, and we use it, obviously it is for entertainment, but the majority are at our core, we use it to teach, you know, and, and we try to transcend the sport of soccer in the sense that we don't just tell you how to kick. We also show you why you're learning how to do this is going to the uh, approach you take to learning is going to extend and proliferate proliferate out into your life. You know, the approach you take in sports and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is absolutely no way that I would be on any social media. This is just me speaking, and I know it sounds antiquated for sure. I would not have any social media if it wasn't for the fact of running the company and allowing... uh, it's a great tool in order to reach so many. We've reached millions, obviously. You know, we're, we're approaching the hundred million, you know, mark of, of views and stuff like that. I wouldn't have it, and it's just me. I I know my nature, and I'm I use it as a tool, and I don't mean the, uh, you know, the Instagram. I get it, not wanting to do. I don't necessarily have that same nature. So when I what I did for Facebook is because Facebook Messenger is a good place for me to to keep in touch with people from uh, outside. But whenever you might want to use Facebook, you have to you have to log in. And if you ever catch yourself scrolling through the nonsense of my friend eating spaghetti and the other one that's jumping off a pool and stuff like that, I realized that's not what I wanted to be looking at. So what I did in order to combat that was actually just 
they allow you to choose favorites. And so I chose my favorites. I put the soccer highlights up there and I put Bruce Lee. Uh, so at least, uh, you know, get some philosophy and stuff, stuff like that. So at least when I started to scroll, what would happen initially was I would scroll through soccer and then Bruce Lee. And once that got done and then I'd see my good friend Scott drinking a beer, I'd know, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. <laughs> you know, I need to I need to I need to be conscious. So I can imagine students, you know, wanting to take that uh, that route. Yeah. But, um, in any case, we're just about done here. I would I would want to say, is there anything else you'd want to? point out you've got so much going on we'll put links and stuff to everything but is there anything else you want to shout out here at the end oh i don't know um yeah i guess my thought is um people embrace technology but always be aware of the dangers of it look at some of the amazing works that people have done out there because i'm in arts and technology check i i will say check out Arsalek Chanaka and, and see some cool things that are going on there. Some of them will blow your mind. Um, and I mean, there's some other cool things that I like to, to watch that also sometimes blow my mind that aren't necessarily art. Um, in the UK, there's a show called BBC Click, and they've always got really interesting things on there about technology. Not as skeptical as I am, but I, I guess my that would be my leaving uh, note is that there's some beauty out there. Technology can enable us, but don't take it wholesale. Question it. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, yeah. Guys, we will throw up links to almost everything that we've, I'm sure, uh, Paulus here uh, has got a nice giant list of stuff that we, we talked about. And obviously, if you're just listening to this, go check out the 11th Commandment so you can actually see everything that we're talking about. I, I would definitely recommend it, especially for this podcast, because all the stuff that we said, there's a lot of visual stuff that you, you guys are going to want to check out and see. But uh, Professor Baker, thank you for being thank here. You. Take yeah. care. All right. All right. We'll see you guys later.